by leaning on Him, don't we? We lean on Him to hold us up as we've been looking at in the Song of Solomon. encourage you now to turn there to chapter 8. We'll be continuing our series. We're in that last chapter, which is chapter 8, where the bride's desires for her husband's love are passionately expressed to him, perhaps in some ways more than, more than ever, is it kind of comes to a, a climax in a certain way. Really, the, you know, the whole song of Solomon is, from start to finish, has much of that with the bride expressing her desire for his love. Remember how it opens, you have the introductory sentence in verse 1, very, very opening, not this chapter, in the uh, chapter 1, verse 1. And then she says, the first thing that's really uh, said after the introduction is, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love, she says, is better than wine. And the whole song then, when you look at the end, if you go all the way to the end, the very last verse here in chapter 8, what does it say? Verse 14, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young, young stag on the mountains of spices. So you remember the stag picture that we've seen in the song? It's with him coming to her, leaping across the mountains to get to her. She wants him to do that. Like, come, come to me and, and be with me and, and love me and show your love to me. That's what she's asking for. So it starts with him, her saying, show me your love. It ends with that. And this whole chapter really has a lot of that in it. We have seen that the traditional and best understanding of the Song of Solomon is that the bride is the church and that her beloved is Christ, the, her beloved groom, her husband. It speaks of their love for each other, for Christ's love for the church. Before Jesus came, the Jews mostly understood the song in this way of their coming Messiah and of the church, um, the Israel. After Jesus came, the church throughout most of her history continued to understand it as the love that is between Christ and his church that is spoken of here. We see the testimony of this in the scriptures themselves, and this is something I haven't really talked to you about before, but I don't know if you've observed it as we've been thinking about this, that after the Song of Solomon was written, then you have prophets and apostles very often speaking of the church in the way that, that it's presented in the song. Uh, you have, um, you know, as a church, as a woman, the church is a woman who's loved by the Lord Jesus, her husband, who has betrothed her to himself. We see references to this bride and groom relationship largely in the books that come after the Song of Solomon. Most notably in Isaiah, very next book in the sequence of our Bible order, but it is also was written some 300 years later or so than Solomon. And then you have Ezekiel, who refers to it quite a lot, and Hosea, the whole book, talks about really her being an unfaithful, the church being unfaithful to Christ, her husband. Then you have John the Baptist come on the scene, and he presents himself as the friend of the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? It's Christ. And he says he's come to establish his kingdom that he might bring you into the kingdom. And Jesus himself uses the uh, you know, parable of the wedding feast and things like that. Then we have Paul speaking of the church as the bride of Christ, that he is going to, that Christ is going to present to himself without spot or blemish. 
And he makes other references to it. I betrothed you as a chaste virgin to Christ, he says. Um, so, that, you know, they're, they're picking up on this, this whole imagery that is given to us in the Song of Solomon. And then the very last book, now I've referred to that many times, that in Revelation chapter 21, you have the picture of the bride coming down, a whole city coming down from heaven, adorned for her husband, and uh, she's now without spot or blemish coming to the great wedding feast that is prepared. So this is, this is something that is very interesting to think about that. Now here we are now then in the last chapter of this book, and most of it is taken up with the church expressing her earnest desire for Jesus Christ to keep on manifesting his love to her as his bride. It's certainly true of the portion that I'm preaching about today. Now last week... I covered the first part of verse 5 where it says, Who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? And this week I intend to continue the, to, to go, go to the rest of verse 5, to cover the rest of verse 5 along with verses 6 and 7. So here in this new section we see the bride strongly expressing her desire for his love. Here, I believe that she addresses him. Now, this is going to be a little bit technical, but bear with me. I think it's important for me to explain why I think that. It's not just a random opinion, but uh, it's because the pronouns that are used of the person that is being addressed, where it says you and your, those are masculine pronouns. In Hebrew, you can designate whether it's masculine or feminine by the vowels or the pointing, as it's called. Now, they have different, um, in the original Hebrew manuscripts, you don't have the pointing. You just have the consonants. But the vowels are added in. And when they would read it, then they would pronounce it in the way that it was either masculine or feminine. So then when they write it with the vowels, they add the pointing that designates this masculine or feminine. And, of course, when they first um, produced these, when, when Solomon or whoever first wrote this book, and he would be there to say, you know, no, you know, he would read it or whatever. And so then there was a bit of an oral tradition established so that when they did the pointing, most people think that the Masoretic text is pretty accurate. And that's the one that most people go on by and that is generally used for producing our, our English translations. So I have indicated on your handout that, I, that you have, um, uh, Lord willing, um, with the letters M.S., for masculine singular with these pronouns. So you can see what I'm talking about. That's talking about a guy when it says you. It's not about a girl. So because, but, but I should mention that the Syriac text has feminine pronouns here. And so there's some warrant for saying, well, no, this should be feminine. But again, usually the Masoretic text is the one that's relied on. But because of that, and because it's easier really to interpret in a lot of ways if it's feminine, then uh, a lot of commentators say, oh yeah, this is feminine. And some of them give various arguments for justifying that. And this is true of both ancient and modern commentators. Most of the modern commentators um, actually sort of prefer the feminine because it kind of works with their narrative of what's going on with the bride and, and that sort of thing. But the original text, again, you know, it doesn't have the vowels, so we can't say, we can't say for sure. But again, the Masoretic text, I'm much more comfortable with going, because that's the one that we generally consider the most reliable. Moreover, though the passage is more difficult to interpret, 
it has been very wonderfully, in, edif- in an edifying way, interpreted by a lot of faithful commentators like James Durham, who's my favorite on the Song of Solomon, Matthew Henry, who is uh, also very good on the Song of Solomon, and John Gill, who is very knowledgeable of uh, a lot of Jewish history and everything and understanding these kind of things. And uh, they've done a very good job with that. So I prefer not to deviate from the masculine uh, pointing. I, I was tempted to. I, I, I sort of thought, man, this would be easier to interpret. But then after I started working on it and seeing how it could be understood, and all of a sudden, wow, this is really powerful. Uh, so we, that's, that's where I'm going. So listen now. Maybe I should say one more thing. And if I'm wrong about that, I remind you what I've said before, that with something like that, that's an interpretation. Hey, if we're wrong, what matters is that what is said is true with the whole of Scripture, and then it can still be edifying. Even Because, you know, somebody uh, like, like Matthew Poole, he takes the other view of it being feminine. Uh, he could certainly preach a, a very, very edifying sermon with it being feminine. So uh, as long as it's consistent with the whole revelation of God in Scripture, that's what really matters. So just want to give that caveat. So listen now as I read this passage to you, picking up from the middle of verse 5, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 5, after the first sentence or his question that we uh, covered last week. Song of Solomon 8, 5, the word of God. I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you, for, brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. Set me as a seal upon your heart, is a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy and infallible word. So this, I believe, as I have said, is the bride's response, or she, I believe she's talking to him, but I haven't said this yet. I believe it is the bride's response to the question that we looked at last week. When somebody looking at the church said with admiration, the beginning of verse 5, who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? We saw that it was likely the daughters of Jerusalem, whom we have seen to be the young disciples in the church, who asked this question about the church. Remember how I described that to you. They are delighted to see the church of which they have become a part. They're maybe newer believers in the church. Maybe they've been in the church for a while and they're newer believers, and maybe they're from outside. But here they are now a part of the church. And when you come into the church from outside, or if you're a young believer growing up, then you're watching and seeing how what is this about? What are, how, do, how do we do things here in the church? And they see, okay, this is what this is the big thing. They lean on the beloved here, and he brings them up from the wilderness of sin and death to his house. This is what the church is. It's people leaning on him and being brought to his house. So so they see that and they and, and they are delighted with that. To put this in theological terms, when we talk about leaning on him, 
The church leans on Him for forgiveness. They, they believe, they trust in Him, they have faith in Him. When we put it in theological terms, we call it faith or believing. So they, they lean on Him for forgiveness, for justification, for adoption, for sanctification, for the glory that is to come. They lean on Him. So she does not look to her own resources, this bride that the daughters of Jerusalem are looking at, but she leans on him who loved her and gave himself for her. And we noted that she does not lean on him merely in the way that a person might lean on a, a tram to bring them out of a wilderness canyon or something. I mean, you totally rely on it. You get into the thing and it carries you up into the, up, up the uh, from the Wilderness Canyon, but she doesn't lean on him just as a mere tool to convey her from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. She leans on him as her beloved, as the one that she dearly loves. As he brings her out of the wilderness of this world and into his father's house of glory, her love for him and her trust in him grows stronger and stronger as he brings her through things and as he provides for her and he cares for her, then her love for him becomes stronger and stronger. And so seeing the admiration of these young disciples, okay, the bride, here's the young disciples, you know, looking and talking, saying, who is this? Like I said, it's more of an admiring thing, coming up out of the wilderness, leaning on her beloved. That's what this is about. This is, this is, this is, this is wonderful. Uh, when, so when the bride as a whole, when, when she sees that, she turns and addresses him. She addresses her beloved, whom she's leaning on, about this whole matter of his love. There are three things that we will look at here. First, from the middle of verse 5, we remind him about how his love for us began. Again, it's her speaking to him. Second, in verse 6, we plead with him to love us like this forever. And then third, in the remainder of verse 6 and verse 7, we speak in praise of his love. So let's get started. First, we the bride remind him about how his love for us began. It began when we awakened him under the apple tree. We say to him in verse 5 from the middle, I wakened you under the apple tree. Do you remember the apple tree? Chapter 2, verse 3. You might look back there if you want. First, we observe there that in, in, saying, in, in talking about the apple tree, we the bride speaking there, we observe that our beloved stood out from all the other trees, like an apple tree. They didn't, the other trees didn't have any fruit on them. They didn't have anything for us like that. Psalm of Solomon 2.3, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. <clears throat> then what did we do? Remember, we sat down under his shade with great delight. And what else did we do? We, we declared that his fruit was sweet to our taste. Now, this speaks of our faith, our looking to him for salvation. Sitting under his shade, you remember, it's coming to him for protection, even protection from the from the punishment that comes upon us for our sin that he takes for us, from our enemies that come and try to destroy us. We come under his shade for protection. And eating his fruit is receiving the blessings 
of his transforming grace that he gives to us, his sanctifying work. He's the one that, as John introduced him, that baptizes with the Holy Spirit, who changes and transforms us. So to use the language from last week, under the tree, what does this mean? It was here that she began to lean on him that he might bring her from the wilderness of sin and death into God's house, his house, his father's house, forever, the house of the son. We began to love him and lean on him under the apple tree. When we saw these trees are of no good, they're of no use, but that tree stands out among all the others as a place where I can go for refuge and protection. Of course, the shade was very important to them because they have hot sun. We, we like to have the sun shine on us, <laughs> but it's, uh, it, it was a very hot climate, and they would go under there for protection, and then also the uh, eating the fruit, and the fruit being you know, delicious and, and wholesome and beneficial to her. So as soon as, what happened when we came to him? Okay, this is what it's talking about here in the verse, in our text in 8.5. As soon as we came to him, or she came to him, we, we the bride, his heart was stirred with delight in us. Delight. The word awaken means aroused or stirred. It's the one that's used in verse 4, just above where she says, you know, don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Remember, remember her saying that. It's, it's used here of the arousal or awakening of his love for us. There was nothing, you see, in us before, nothing whatsoever to attract him. We were not attractive. When he purposed to save us, it was before the foundation of the world, and even, you know, until our conversion, there was nothing attractive in us to, to draw him. To. In fact, we were repulsive to him, because of our sin, we had rebelled against him. We hated him. We hated his father. He didn't, have, he didn't value that. He didn't say, oh, look how beautiful they are. I've, I've got to go and help. No, there was nothing good in us. We were full of sin and defilement. We were devoid of beauty. We didn't want anything to do with him. We, wanted, we were all about the world and getting on in the world. We were, we were a mess. But as we have seen before in the song, it only took one look of love from us to stir up his affection. In 4.9, he said, You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes. Remember what I told you about that before? That um, when, when he saw faith in us for the first time, okay, when we started to look to him for salvation, when that when that began, when there was that new birth, this look to him to bring us out of the wilderness and to be his disciple, to be his bride, to, to live with him, to follow him, was the beginning of new life in us that he knew was eternal life. It wasn't any kind of temporary thing. He was going to have us devoted to him forever and ever and he was delighted because we had not at all been even interested in him prior to that now of course as he began to draw us we started to gain an interest before our conversion perhaps but in ourselves no we were dead in our trespasses and sins we didn't even care about him whatsoever but it, you see what this was our our turning to him and looking to him was the outcome 
of his powerful call, his effectual call when he saw us in our sin and our defilement and our blood, and he said, live. And he brought life to us by his spirit. You see, it's the working of his spirit that caused us to, what did, this, what did that work do? It caused us to see our hopeless condition, that we were lost, that we were sinners who could not save ourselves, that we were guilty, that we were condemned to hell forever and ever because of our sin. And then we saw also by the working of his life-giving spirit and his call, his effectual call, that he was the only Savior. Then we saw the apple tree. We said, that, one's, that one stands out among all these others. That's the tree. That's the only tree that has something good on it. It was the call that renewed our heart to, so that we wanted to be reconciled to him. We wanted to have him as our Savior. We wanted to come to the Father now. Jesus says, no one comes out of the wilderness to the Father but by me. So we, we wanted that. There was a complete change in our whole will, our whole disposition. He, <coughs> he was thrilled to see it. It drew, it drew out his affection. You might say that he was smitten when he saw us. There was love there that was like love that had not been a kind of love that had not been there before. Now, he had loved us from before the foundation of the world. We were chosen in him by the Father to be, you know, to be saved and redeemed and all that. It, it was a kind of love. It was a committed love. It was a love that, w- that was resolved to save us and to bring us out of that state but he didn't love what we were. In that. He wasn't attracted to us and what we were in that state. We were his enemies again. It was not until we believed that we became delightful to him, even the very delight of his eyes. You say, well, I've still got all his sin. Yeah, we do. And he's working in us. But seeing that life that was devoted to him, that loves him, that looks to him, that was not at all there before, that, that changes everything. Before he loved us, even though we were sinners. But he had no delight in us. We were repulsive and obnoxious. But as soon as we looked to him for deliverance, his heart was awakened. It was stirred. It was aroused. If you look up that, the Hebrew word there for that, you can see that it's translated in all those different ways. Awakened, stirred, aroused. He was awakened with deep affection and delight for us. He was ravished with our love for him. And he became, we became his bride. Right then, we were betrothed. That's what Paul talks about when he says, I betrothed you as a chaste virgin. Like he brought them out to come to Christ when when he preached the gospel to them. And as soon as they believed, they became his bride. They became members of the bride. We're all the bride of Christ together, of course, in the church. What a fine day that was. The day of her espousals, right? The day of conversion. Now, there's different, of course, it's different for uh, different people. If, if you are someone that grew up in the church from your childhood, you may, not know the, you may not know a day when you came to believe in him. Perhaps from as far back as you can remember, you've been leaning on him as the only savior and 
and looking to him and, and f- loving him, is, you know, delighting in him. Um, maybe, though, there's, there's, young adult, there's young people that grow up in the church that, that don't have faith for, for many years. And then somewhere along the way, they begin to see what this is all about, that they had not really picked up on. They had a hard heart and they didn't pick up. And, and then they, they respond. And, of course, there are those who come from outside and sometimes it's very dramatic that they go from the darkness to the light and everybody can see the radical change that, that took place in them. But it's a fine day, the day of espousal, the day of betrothal, the day of when, when we were brought to him and engaged to him, as it were, betrothed to him. But we add something more here in verse 5, something more about the apple tree. Now, this is where it really gets interesting, <laughs> Because it was under this same apple tree that he, our beloved, was born. Now, remember, he is the apple tree, and yet he is our beloved, and he was born under the apple tree. So look at what it says from the middle of verse 5. I awakened you under the apple tree. That's what we just looked at. Now, there, under the same apple tree, right? There, your mother brought you forth there she who bore you brought you forth. Okay, who bore him? Who brought him forth? Who was the son given to? The bride, the church. Where was she when she received that promise? She was under the apple tree. She was there also trusting in him, delighting in his fruit, looking to him to do the very thing that he promised to do, to bring a son to her, give her a son who would be the savior of the world. So here he is, the son of God, who is from all eternity, promising that he's going to come a son born to the woman, to the church. And so she's looking to, uh, she's trusting in him to bring him forth. (laughs) And then in the fullness of time, of course, she did bring him forth. And he became our redeemer. Remember, We're not talking about something crass here, but he is, because this is an allegory, but he is both our husband and the son who is born to us. We are, in fact, his mother as well as his wife, and we are the children that is brought forth by our union with him through the ages. Because the bride adds to herself, just as she edifies herself, she also brings herself forth. She brings forth children through her union with him. So remember again, I mean, this is an allegory using the physical to illustrate the spiritual. The scriptures speak to us of this multifaceted relationship, don't they? I mean, it's true. Is he not revealed to us? Is um, a son born to us? Is he not revealed to us also as our husband who loves us? Is he not also revealed clearly in Scripture in various places as the one who um, is our sister? So husband, mother, sister, and, and the one that we bring children forth by him. We're, we're, his, we're his children as well. All, all of these things. So she came under him, under his shade is her apple tree, delighting the protection and eating the fruit. And it was in that place of faith that, here's the weird thing, that she conceived him and brought him forth. 
Okay, Hebrews 11.11 speaks about this. Sarah is described as the mother of believing women who trust in God, who are under the apple tree, okay, in 1 Peter 3. And what does the Bible say about Sarah, Abraham's wife? Hebrews 11.11, by faith, what does that mean? She's under the apple tree. She's leaning on her beloved. She's trusting in his promises. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. What was the significance of that child? It was by that child that the Messiah would come through his descendants. She brought forth in that sense the Messiah, the woman brought forth, the trusting woman, the woman believing under the tree, the whole church, the bride, trusting in the promises of God, brought forth the Son in the fullness of time that God had promised. Verse 12 goes on in the Hebrews passage, Hebrews eleven twelve. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude. The whole church in that respect, came from them, even though some of them were before them. <laughs> because the, this bride, she's, she's complex. But uh, the, the, i read that again. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So she and Abraham were under the same apple tree, the place of dependence on the Lord, when they brought forth Isaac, from whom Christ came. The church, the woman, continued to look to Christ, remaining under him as her apple tree until the day that she brought him forth. And then he went to the cross to save her and rose again from the dead to bring with eternal life for her, who brought him forth under the apple tree. Isaiah says, Isaiah 54, 1, Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Okay, this, this church that was in the wilderness, she was unfruitful, she couldn't bring forth the child of promise, but by trusting in him, she brought him forth. Okay, sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. And then in verse five, he adds, for your maker is your husband. Can't be any clearer than that, can you? The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. So you see then, everything for the church happens under the apple tree. That's where she becomes fruitful. That's where she leans on her beloved and is brought out of the wilderness. There we come to him and lean on him for that purpose because we are in the wilderness and we lean on him to bring us out and uh, out of sin and death into his home forever and ever. And when we lean on him, at that time, there's a change because his love is awakened. Not the love that he had for us from before the foundation of the world, that committed love, but the love that we would call affectionate love, 
Love that says, you are lovely, you are beautiful. There's a great difference, isn't there? I mean, you might see someone that you love and you pity and, you know, they're a mess and their whole life is ruined and you want to help them, but hopefully it's not someone you want to marry. It's an entirely different thing when you see someone that you want to marry. You're attracted to them. You desire them. You, you take pleasure and delight in them. It's a very, very different thing. And that's where we went from that thing that was repulsive and reprehensible and, and defiled and, and, and repugnant to him to that which was lovely in his sight. Under the apple tree is where that faith began. And it's by him as our husband on whom we lean in faith that we then bring forth sons and daughters for his kingdom who by faith become part of his family, who become more of the bride, the one bride made up of many members. So we, the bride, are his wife, his mother, and his children all at the same time. And how dearly he loves us. He delights in our faith and our affection. He is ravished with one look of our eyes. And so, what do we do? As the song moves on, we, the bride, considering his ardent love, plead with him to keep on loving us, to love us forever. Make this love a permanent love, not a temporary thing. You have, you're ravished with us, you're pleased with us, make it that way forever. What does she say? She says, she, she says, verse 6, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. A seal is a mark of ownership. We have seals today that are used to authenticate official documents. For example, a corporation will have a corporate seal for their, that's their distinct seal that they use to authenticate documents that they have committed to or that they have written Lawyers have seals and put on a will or something like that that's done uh, to show that it's an official legal document. Universities have seals that they use when they give you a diploma. They stamp their seal on it to say, this person met the requirements for this education and we have awarded them a Bachelor of Science degree or whatever it is. It's a bit like a signature, but it's an imprint that is given. So in the ancient world, men of rank had seals that they carried around with them to use for business transactions and to seal documents and such things. And uh, the documents that maybe or letters that weren't to be opened by anyone but the recipient, the one that was, was sent to. Each seal, that each owner had his own unique seal carved out to represent the owner. And they would affix it on important papers, you know, to, it, it would testify and say, you know, this is, this is for me. This, I authenticate this document. I've put my seal on it. Like when a king would send out a decree, he would put his seal on it. And then you knew this came from the king because it's got his seal on it. Better not use the king's seal. If it wasn't, you'd be in really, really big trouble. So here we, the bride, are asking him to testify to us that, that he will love us forever. God establishes that pattern with marriage should, that it should be ratified with a covenant commitment. The couple testifies of their love and commitment before witnesses and before God. They pledge the, their, their troth or their faithfulness to each other until death parts them. It is right for a bride to a girl to ask her man to testify 
of the authenticity of his love and of a committed permanent love to her before she takes him. No woman should be willing to give herself to a man sexually unless he is willing to first pledge his committed love in a covenant of marriage. And no man should take a woman, any woman, without such a pledge, giving such a pledge to her of his love, committed love to her. This is to be a commitment to have her alone and for her to have him alone until death separates them. Seeing that Jesus loves us like a husband, we then, seeing that from what, what has been revealed here already, when the bride thinks about that and how he, he took her and how he poured his love out on her, then we want him to assure us that he will love us forever. That's what she says here. Seal me. You know, set me as a seal, she says. So we ask him, set us as a seal upon both his heart and his arm. As a seal upon his heart, we're asking for his affections, that he would cherish us from the heart. We want to be engraved upon his heart forever as the one that he loves. We want him whom we have come to to save us to see to it that nothing comes between us and him that would turn him away from us. Now, that's something unique about Jesus, isn't it? When a husband pledges, he can't control the heart of his wife. She has to promise what she's going to do. He has to promise what he's going to do. But in this case, you see, we ask Jesus that because he's able to keep us by his powerful grace that drew us in in the first place. We're kept by the power of God through faith, right? Under the apple tree. We look to him. We trust in him. So under the apple tree, here we are leaning on our beloved and we're saying, Lord, like seal me to your heart, like tie me up there, engrave me upon your heart indelibly so that I will never be Take, that you will always cherish me. Keep me, if I could put it this way, cherishable. <laughs> let, me be, let me be lovely to you, an object of your affection. See to it that I do not depart from you. You remember Peter, when uh, Jesus prayed for him, I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith fail not. Judas didn't have that attraction because he was reprobate all the way along. Peter, though, he had come to Christ with true faith. And so Jesus said, Hey, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. He continued to have that, that seed of faith that was then revived again after he repented. So he's able to see to it that we never depart from him, that we continue to lean on him in the way that he delights. So a seal upon the heart, okay, that he would cherish us from the heart, but also a seal upon the arm. By asking for that, we're asking him to act for us. What does the arm represent in Scripture? It represents the strength, the action that is employed, in, in this case, in behalf of another. His strength that protects us, that delivers us, and provides all things for us. We're coming through the wilderness. We need the manna. We need the, um, we, we need the water from the rock. We need protection from our enemies. We need him to keep us and chasten us when we go astray. Psalm 44, 3 says, For they did not gain possession of the land when they came through the wilderness to the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm, arm, nor did their own arm save them, but it was your right hand, the Lord's right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance because you favored them. So we're asking him to take care of us and to defend us with his mighty arm. 
that that arm will always be employed for our salvation, that we will be imprinted upon his arm, that his actions are for our sake, for our benefit, that he who is the sovereign over all would work all things for what? For our good, for our blessing. He said, I will bless you when he came to us to make his covenant with us. Blessing, I will bless you. The request for a seal on the arm also speaks of a public display. The heart is hidden, and what he does in giving us his protection and strength and all that is seen by everyone that we're written on his hand or on his arm. I might add that we have every reason to trust him, that he will be faithful to do this. We sang songs about his faithfulness, didn't we? About his steadfast love. Once we have come to him and we have begun to lean on him, then you know we can absolutely know that that we're under his that he cherishes us forever and that we're under his protection and care forever. I am leaning on him to bring me out of the wilderness of sin and death and to bring me into his father's house to live with him forever. And I am continually upon his heart and I will continue and he will continually employ his arm for my good and salvation. How wonderful it is then to be forever cherished and blessed the heart and the arm by our husband upon whom we lean. He set his seal or he set us as a seal upon his heart and upon his arm. So now, what do we do next? We, the bride, next speak of the excellence of this love. This love that we have been talking about. We read in 1 Corinthians 13, it talked about how excellent love is. So you see this here in the remainder of verse 6 and in verse 7. Okay, Solomon, Solomon 5, the remainder of verse 6 and verse 7. First, this love is said to be excellent. We're going to look at five things. This love is said to be excellent because it is as strong as death. Verse 6, for love is as strong as death. Like death, it pursues the one it wants until it gets him. It doesn't matter how strong you are, does it? I mean, death will conquer you unless the Lord returns before you die. You, you, can't, you can't prevent that. No matter how strong you are, if it wants you, it'll get you, and it wants everybody. Death gets everyone. And I say, is it not a marvelous thing that our love actually overpowers Christ? Now, we have to be careful when we say that, don't we? We have to, we have to nuance that. We have to qualify it. But we, we need to keep in mind that it is the love that, that he works into us. Okay, like he's the one when we didn't have any love for him. And he, as we saw, he gave us his spirit. He called us and he worked in us and he gave us that faith that looks to him in love, wanting him to save us, that we could be with him forever. As we saw, he cannot, though, when he gives us that, when that love is there, he can't resist us. He can't resist us anymore when we have answered his call. In fact, he would be unjust, unrighteous if we came to him to lean on him and he resisted us. Okay, we come and he saves us forever. 
as soon as he sees our faith, which is always joined with our love and our desire to belong to him, the, it's the very thing we trust in, isn't it? To deliver us from the wilderness, so what? So that we just won't get in trouble? No, no, no. So we can be with him forever, be reconciled to him. That's the reason we come. And I say, once he sees that faith, not, not some kind of faith that just wants to get out of trouble, but the faith that wants him, wants his father's house, wants to be with him, faith that leans on him, we have his heart and his mighty arm forever. But this love also works the other way. I mean that he overpowers us by his love. First, there is the love that drew us before there was anything attractive in us that I spoke about before, that powerful love that calls us and by the working of his spirit overpowers us. He loved us, gave himself for us, and we came to him. Then there is this love that we have been talking about after we're converted in which he actually takes delight in us. So not the love even though love, but the love because love, because you're dear to me, because you're attractive, appealing, all of these things. I'm ravished with your love. And this love is so powerful that it prevails forever. Once his love that is attracted to us is set on us, it can never be overcome, not by our sin, not even by death itself. It is, in fact, even stronger than death because he conquers death because of this love. Indeed, second, this love is excellent because it is fiercely jealous. Verse 6 goes on, jealousy as cruel as the grave. It's very possessive, like the grave. What does the grave say when it gets someone? It says, mine mine. You can't have this person anymore. They are mine. They're in the grave. Only with this love, it's not nasty like death is. It says this as a friend that you delight in, that you delight in. You're glad that he possesses you. You wanted to be, you came to him that he would possess you. And he says, mine. I will keep you forever. I will never let you go. No one can take you out of my hand. No enemy can come between me and you and separate us from one another. With Christ, jealousy is a wonderful and beautiful aspect of his love because although it is fierce like the jealousy of the grave and won't let anybody come and mess with that, break that apart, that that bond apart. It is not twisted or distorted by like human jealousy can be. Even when it's a foundationally the right kind of jealousy, it can be twisted and distorted with unjust suspicion. You know, who are you talking to? What was that? You know, that that kind of thing when it's not even justified. There, There is this holy fierceness from him toward anything that tries to come between him and us, whether it be our sin, whether it be death, whether it be Satan, whether it be the world, there is this fierce jealousy that he has, and we're very glad for it. He has seen our faith. He has seen our love. He has seen our desire for him, and he is not going to let anything get in the way and break up our relationship with him because 
we have come to him under the apple tree and we have said, Lord, save me. I am leaning upon you. And even if our faith starts to weaken and falter like Peter says, I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And it won't. Does he not chasten us when we start to go astray? That's his jealousy. And what is his chastening like for those that are truly his children? Is it like a legal thing that he says, you better do this or I'm going to make you go, oh, I've got to go and serve Jesus again. I've got chastened. I've got to go serve him. What happens with chastisement of a child? You, you, it brings you to the place where you say, I was so stupid. Why did I depart from him? Of course I want to go back to him. He chastened me and he brought me into all this trouble to wake me up and now I can see I was such an idiot. It's not just, I don't want to be chastened anymore. But it's like, I was so stupid. I, I'm gonna go. It's good for me that I was afflicted. Now I want to go back to him and I want to, I want to serve him. This is what he does when he chases. He helps us to see how foolish we were to ever depart from him and, and to drift away from him. He restores our love to him because that's what he's preserving, isn't it? He's not just preserving a legal outward conformity to him. He's preserving our love to him. That's what we wanted him to preserve. We don't want to just be like, Oh, God, I serve Jesus, and you know, off we go. We, we, we want to be devoted to him, passionate for him. So, and, and then another thing about this jealousy. We're going to see the strength of this jealousy on the day of judgment. How beautiful this jealousy is, his commitment to us and the depth of his love. His jealous love will be fully displayed when he crushes those who tried to interfere and come between us and him. He will also destroy the vestiges of sin that are in us, all that remains of our sinful flesh. But he will destroy the world. I don't mean plants and trees and animals and stuff like that. The world's going to be redeemed, it says, like we are. The sons of God are going to be redeemed with us. It's groaning until that day. But he's going to destroy the system of the world that tries to get us away from the Lord, get us to diverted to follow after some fantasy or some stupid thing that the world presents to us as some good thing that they want us to, to follow. And in that day, he'll, we'll see that. We'll see the destruction of those who opposed him and his kingdom. Those who banded together against the Lord and against his anointed. And he will destroy Satan, who constantly tries to come between us and him. We will see how much he loves us by the zeal that he has, the jealousy that he has in dealing with our enemies. And yes, even the last enemy, death, will be destroyed in that day. His jealousy removes every single thing that tries to stand or that does stand between us and him. Even now, he's already bringing us up from the wilderness with jealousy that protects us, that defends us, that guards us, that transforms us to be his and his alone, and his fully, jealousy that chastens us, as we've said, that we, might be, that we might more and more love him. How? With all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Third, this love is excellent because it burns with passion. The end of verse 6 says, its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Now, these flames, they could be referring to the jealousy, couldn't they, that we were just talking about? Or they could be referring to the love. 
that's kind of bigger than that. Jealousy is a part of the love. It seems to me that it's best to say that they refer to love, which includes jealousy. We have just seen that jealousy, jealousy fiercely abolishes all that tries to come between us and our Lord as his bride. It's indeed a burning jealousy, jealousy with flames. But that's not all that burns in our Savior, is it? He also burns with desire for us, desire, passion to be with us. Notice that the word flame is used three times here. Our Lord has a burning passion to be with us as well as to keep anything from coming between us. Perhaps you remember that in the Song of Solomon chapter 5, when he withdrew from us for a time, remember that, to correct us when we were cold to him and we said, don't bother me, I don't want to stay in bed. Um, He could not stay away. Why? You remember what he said to us? He couldn't stay away when he saw our yearnings for him. After we were separated, we were saying, we're going around looking for him everywhere. And he was watching, remember? And he said in 6.5, turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. Stop looking at me because I'm trying to chasten you. <laughs> I need to chasten you. And you, you're, you're breaking me down. I can't, when, when you're yearning for me, I can't stay away. And in 6.12, he said that before he was even aware that he was already getting a chariot to bring them together, to bring her to him or him to her. Uh, he was getting a noble chariot of the noble people, a, a powerful chariot that w- would bring them together. He, he could get, he, so he could get to us and we could get to him. He could not stay away. He finds us irresistible. When? When? When we're perfect? No, when we are leaning upon him. When we come to him and look to him to be our Savior, when we we rely upon Him under the tree. He went on to say that in that section that we were His palm tree and that our breasts were its clusters. And He says He'll climb us and take hold of our branches. Passion. The burning that He has is the passion that He has to be with us and the passion that He has to bless us. He is taking us through the training that we need in this world. But I tell you, all the while, our Lord Jesus Christ is eager to bring us into the Father's house to be with him forever. He wants to give us our glorious garments now. But he has to wait. We have to wait a little bit longer. He wants to bring us into the beautiful gardens that he has for us, to the beautiful house, the palace, the temple that he has for us. He wants to show us his glory and his goodness and all of its fullness that we have not yet seen. But we need some time in this world until his work in us is complete, until the bride is complete. He burns with desire, you see, and he will do it at the appointed time. As the bride said in 7.10, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. It's a desire that burns with a, with a hot flame for his people. Fourth, this love is excellent because it cannot be quenched. Can't put the flame out. Verse 7 begins with these words. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. 
In the Bible, waters and floods represent trials. For example, in Psalm 42, 7, it's the one where they're separated, you know, and yearning to go and be with God and longing for his courts. And it says, all your waves and billows have gone over me. Okay, trials that have have gone over my head. And in Psalm 66, it speaks of how he brought us through fire and water. Okay, trials. Isaiah speaks of Assyria taking the land as them coming up like a flood that, that floods all the way up to the head, to the neck, and only Jerusalem remains. Now Satan, okay, when true divine love is there, what I want to say is that nothing can quench it. No amount of water can put out the flame. No amount of water can wash it away. That love remains. Satan does not understand this love. What did he think when he saw the love of Job? He said, take away what he has. Let me flood him with trials and he'll curse you to your face. He didn't understand. You can't quench this love. What happened with Job? He destroyed his family. Satan destroyed his family, his property, his friendships, his honor. God gave him even permission to destroy his body in a way, not completely, not to kill him, but to bring great destruction and wreak havoc. But Job's love for God increased through the whole ordeal. Did Job struggle? Yeah. But his love increased for God through the ordeal because... He was kept by the power of God through faith. You can't quench this love. No no trials can quench it. He tried to wash away, Satan tried to wash away the love of Jesus through the affliction of the cross. But the cross only served to prove all the more his love for the Father and for his people that he came to redeem. So also the Apostle Paul, he set a wonderful example for us in his sufferings. He had so many of them, didn't he? So many trials and things, floods and floods and floods just kept coming. He glorified God in his affliction. Because like David, he actually gloried in the affliction. Because like David, he said, it's good for me that I've been afflicted. Remember when he said, God did this so that I wouldn't be overcome with pride. It would destroy my relationship with him. He walked through his afflictions leaning on Jesus. And he spoke of his afflictions as times when he enjoyed fellowship with Jesus. The fellowship of his sufferings, he called it. Go through the wilderness with someone. There's all kinds of trials and you have to be provided for and cared for and protected and delivered and all these things. You grow closer to them. Yes, he counted himself privileged to suffer for the cause of Christ. And he, and he, he had to suffer so much. He knew that Christ had to suffer so much more than he ever would. His sufferings did not drive him away. The floods did not drive him away and quench his love. But they were almost like pouring uh, oil on the flame. It, it made it burn brighter. In Romans 8, we have the beautiful assurance given to us from God that nothing can separate us from his love. Romans eight thirty three, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril? All kinds of things you see. Or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing 
shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is remarkable to see how our Lord wisely uses the floods, the trials, to deepen our love for him rather than diminishing our love for him. He even promises that our trials will bring about a greater reward in all eternity, in glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment in this world, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So what the trials are producing, the fruit that they're producing in us, is incomparable. The trials are incomparable with what is going to be brought forth. Okay, fifth, this love is excellent because it is superior to everything else that you have. Verse 7 concludes with these words. Song of Solomon 8, 7. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Rich men typically assume that they can buy anything. I've got enough money, I can get whatever I want. But let a man come and offer you all the wealth of his household, his entire state, for love, and he will not succeed where there is real love. The bride of Christ will be horrified at the very thought that this man should think that he could convince her to part from her beloved. For that? It's utterly despised what he's offering in comparison to what he wants to get with it. Perish the very thought. You tell me, you who know Christ, if someone offered to purchase Christ's love, assuming that it could be sold, you have to make that assumption. I think the passage makes that assumption. Assuming it could be sold, would you go for it? You know, what if it, what if it was a million dollars? Oh, yeah, yeah, you can have Christ instead of me. I'll, I'll get the million dollars, you get Christ. Would, that, would you be interested in that? What if it was 10 million? What if it was a billion? What if it was 10 billion? It doesn't matter, does it? It's, no, no. It's, 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 that's, not, that's a despicable offer. I, I've got no interest in that. Think of how valuable the love of Christ really is compared to anything else. Do you want to trade it in for something? A little bit of comfort in this world? No, you wouldn't sell it for anything. It's the most precious thing of all. It is yours not just for this time, but for all eternity. There's a seal there forever and ever. I have an important question, though, in all of this. How do you get this love? How do you get this love in the first place? Do you have to wretch it up somehow? Do you have to become lovely and beautiful and do a whole bunch of beauty treatment and come to say, will you love me now? Will you love me now? I did this for you. Will you love me now? Do we come out? Is that how we get this love of Christ? No. No. In fact, He's offended when we do that because what we present to him is repulsive to him. What do we bring? We come and say, Lord, save me. Lord, you do the saving because I can't. 
Lord, you bring me out of the wilderness because you're the only one that can do it. And you've promised that you will not turn anyone away that comes to you. That's all you do. You lean on him. You lean on him to bring you from darkness to eternal light, from Satan to God, from alienation and condemnation to righteousness and beauty and justification and holiness. He's the one that brings you out of the wilderness. You're not going to bring yourself out. No, you go under the apple tree. Come under His shade. Come and get His fruit. He says, come. No charge. It's free. It's, it, it, come and I will save you. You don't have to do any great thing to have it. If you will come and trust Him, then He'll save you. And He will love you with a love that is fiercely jealous. First of all, a love that's strong as death. A love that is fiercely jealous. A love that burns with passion. A love that can never be quenched. And a love that is more valuable than anything else. Please stand and let's call on His name. Our gracious Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, how we thank you for the blessing of salvation. We thank you that there is a Savior for us, for people like us, a Savior for people who cannot possibly save themselves, for people who have nothing good in them. We thank you, Lord, that though there is nothing good in us, that when we come to you believing that you delight in that, that you see us leaning on you, trusting in you, and that that's irresistible to you. Here is someone that I have delivered from their sin and their bondage who has come to lean on me. And Lord, you will not despise that. Doesn't matter where we are. Doesn't matter how defiled and polluted we are. If we just turn our eyes to to look to you for salvation and say, Lord, deliver me. You will do it. You will set your love on us forever. A a love that delights in us. Not just a love that's committed, but a love that delights in us and it's committed to remain delighted in us and that is committed to making us delightful to you. We're not all the way there by any means at this point as far as all that you're going to do to make us a a bride to you that is without spot and blemish a bride that you will present at the last day. There's still a lot more that has to be done. And we thank you that your jealousy is, is doing that work now in a way that is very marvelous and sometimes mysterious. But Father, that at the last day, that work is going to be radically complete. It's going to be thorough. And you're going to block out and, and abolish everything that comes between us and you. We thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you for the hope that we have. We thank you that that we're sealed on your heart and on your arm and that you will cherish us as we lean on you going through the wilderness all the time. You will will be in your heart. And not only that, but you will act for us that every single thing that comes in our life, you have promised that you work all things together together for good to those that love you and are called according to your purpose for those that are leaning on you, those that have come to you. 
Nothing can separate us from your love. Great trials that come that you will use every single one to bring us near to you. Though some of them may knock us back. They may make us deny you for a time like Peter did or, or to do something foolish like David did. But Father, even those trials that when they're all done and it's all over, then you will bring us nearer to you than we were before. We thank you that you're with us. Once we start leaning on you, once we believe, you're with us all the way through the great and howling wilderness until we're brought into your Father's house to the many mansions that you have prepared for us where we will be with you forever and ever, beholding your glory and delighting in you and all that you've done and seeing you as you are. Father, what more could we ask? Oh Lord, keep us, preserve us, seal, place, set us as a seal on your heart and on your arm. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated as we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> So today, in the Song of Solomon, we saw how we, the bride, when we were considering how his affection for us, his love for us, and how it first began when we came to him, and we went from you know, being enemies and those who were condemned to those who were now saved and forgiven and justified and delighted in by him, when his love was awakened in that way, when we first believed, we then ask our Lord to seal us upon his heart and upon his arm, to engrave us on his heart and arm that he might always cherish us and that he might always use his mighty arm to bless us the way he promises to bless his people. Our Lord has given us baptism in the Lord's Supper as signs to represent, as our catechism says, to represent, seal, and apply all of the saving benefits of Christ to us as he has promised. So at the supper in particular, he represents, signifies, gives, gives a sign with the bread and wine of his body and blood that was sacrificed for the remission of our sin. Okay, the bread representing his body and the wine representing his blood shed. And he seals the benefits of his saving work, testifies that they are ours when we come to this table by having us eat the bread and drink the wine that represents his blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. In remembrance of him, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Eat and drink in remembrance of me. He calls all who believe and they only, to partake because they are the ones who receive the benefits. It is to believers that he testifies at this table. You should not come if you're not leaning on Christ to deliver you from sin and death and to bring you into, you, into his Father's house because if you come as an unbeliever, you misuse God's seal. And that's a very reprehensible thing to do. He will judge you for that, just as our courts would judge you if you took the seal of, of a lawyer or a corporation or something like that 
and you put it on your own document in order, and, and said that they had authenticated that document when, when they hadn't, then you would get in serious trouble for that. How much more if you take the seal of God and you try to use it in a way that he has not authorized? But what a great encouragement it is for us to come to the table if we are among those who simply are leaning on Jesus. At this table, he testifies of what he did to save us, his body given and his blood shed to atone for our sins. Here at this table, he also testifies of his love for us, love that will cause him to see to it that nothing comes between us and him. He did this for us. He gave himself for us. He continues to give himself for us. And there is more. He not only solemnly attests to us as those who are blessed with his benefits, that we are those who are blessed with his benefits who believe, but he also actually applies those benefits to us when we come and partake at the table. So, in other words, he feeds us and nourishes us with his grace so that we're brought more and more out of the wilderness of sin and such and more and more into the ways of his holy house. We grow, in other words, in our repentance, in our love, and in our obedience, in new obedience. We, we're, we're changed. So listen now to the word of institution from Matthew twenty six twenty six, where he tells us what this table is about. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Okay, so he's saying, like, you who are trusting in me, take this and eat it because it's for you. I did it for you. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So remember, you should not come unless you're leaning on Christ to deliver you from sin and its penalty and are looking to him to bring you into his house. If you're not, then he'll judge you for misusing his seals. You should also be one who has professed your faith publicly, who is a member of the church that he established on earth. You should be both baptized and a communicant member in good standing. But you who are trusting in him, Come and receive your Lord's testimony that he has saved you by the cross and that you are engraved on his heart and on his arm that he will ever be with you to keep you and deliver you and look to him to nourish you through his offering that was made for our sins, his body and blood given for our sins. Let's pray and ask him to bless us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for giving us this table, having your son give us this table. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you in this way wish to seal to us the benefits of your saving work that that saving work, that dying on the cross for sinners is ours. You seal us when we come as those who are leaning. We use the sign in a right way. 
when we receive the sign as those who are leaning on you for forgiveness, for justification, for adoption, for sanctification, for glorification, for a place in your house, for an inheritance in eternity, for eternal life. Father, we come and you authenticate that yes, these are my people who are leaning on me and I will save them. And I have already done what is necessary to atone for our sins and that they are leaning on me and what I have done will not fail. That they are already justified by faith. They're already born again and changed. They're already adopted. And I am working in them until the end. We praise you, Lord, that this is your testimony to us, that you seal to us at this table. We do ask that you would also nourish us at this table, for we want to grow in our love to you, our commitment to you, in our holy walk. We want to become more and more like Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for our sins against you, for the times when We do wander off when we are foolish, when we have to be chastened. Father, there is much sin in us, and we thank you that you are the one who forgives our sins by the blood of the cross. We look to you, Lord, for the ongoing forgiveness. We have the initial forgiveness from when we believed, but we need ongoing forgiveness for the sins that we have committed since then. So we confess that we are unworthy even now of the least of your mercies, And yet, Lord, you delight in us because we have come to you. Thank you, Lord. Bless us. Bless us, your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the blessing of the Lord our God. Now may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.